Good morning. This morning, I want to talk about confidence. Using a device of which nobody ever has any confidence, so let's press the button. It worked. The dictionary defines confidence as the quality of being certain of your abilities or of having trust in people, plans, or the future. We live in a world where confidence, especially self-confidence, is highly sought after and almost universally acclaimed. Many believe that to boost your happiness, your wealth, or improve your relationships, all you need is greater self-confidence, a more positive mental attitude. The world's slogans go, if you believe it, you can do it. Change your thinking, change your life. Fake it till you make it. Successful people, after all, have more confidence. Winners, if you measure their confidence even before the race, tend to be, on average, more confident than losers. So perhaps all you need to be successful, to be a winner, is to fake that same confidence. Never mind, of course, that true confidence should be a byproduct of proven success, not a precursor that replaces the need for it. My confidence to have a go at brain surgery would be downright dangerous. At best, it would be hubris, and at worst, a total delusion. But we just don't want to spend the time and effort to acquire the skill and training that it takes to be good at anything. Sufficient skill for genuine confidence takes, it's reckoned, around 10,000 hours of patient practice. Better then, easier then, to fake it, not just till you make it, but according to social psychologist Amy Cuddy, until you become it. Amy's TED Talk and best-selling book has introduced more than 35 million people to the confidence-boosting art of power posing. I wish I was making this up. Her appealing claim is that by striking the right power pose, you won't just transform how you feel, it will transform your life and your career. So just in case it works, let me share three of her power poses with you. The first she calls pride, which I know, according to Proverbs 16, comes before destruction. But Amy says that up until that point, you will feel fantastic. This is the classic pose of pride, arms aloft in a victory position. Really, the only fascinating thing I found in Amy's TED Talk is that this pose is entirely universal. It crosses all languages and all cultures. Even people who are congenitally blind, blind from birth, when they win something, will adopt this pose. They're copying no one. This is the feel-good pose of victory. Now, Amy says, why train for years to actually win the Olympic 100 meters? Why put yourself through all the push-ups and the ice baths training when you can just stay at home and put your arms above your head and get the same feel-good hormones? Amy claims that going like this for two minutes a day will make you feel exactly like Usain Bolt winning the 100 meters at least exactly to the point when you next try to run to catch the bus. <laughs> the second pose is my personal favourite. It's called the Wonder Woman, and it's a little bit more complicated than the first, so I'll tell you how to do it, and you can try this at home. You need your feet slightly wider than your shoulders width apart. You need your feet turned out. That's important. We'll see what happens if you forget that in a minute. You need your hands on your hips. You need to shift your bum forward, put your shoulders back, and then importantly, head up, there we are. Is that good? This seemed like such a better idea when I was writing it. So, now, 
I need you to see what happens if you get power posing wrong, because you'll see in a second there's only two steps between this, and in my head I feel exactly like Wonder Woman. If you're wondering, I'm on the left, the picture's on the right. So <laughs> I feel like Wonder Woman, but I might look something like this. Now, George was aiming for Wonder Woman, but let me show you this morning, live before your very eyes, two steps between Wonder Woman and George Osborne. So he's aiming for this, but if I put the hands like this and the feet turn inwards, look, George Osborne, Wonder Woman. It's George Osborne, Wonder Woman. He would have been better off aiming for a political power pose. Here from House of Cards, we see a powerful politician. She calls this phrase the Luma. All of these poses are just about making yourself seem bigger. This one is about seeming bigger, looming forward, and invading the space, being the first to enter into the space of the person in front of you. All of these are just illusions. Like any bad salesman, any horrible boss, or any dominant ape, they're just an illusions with a hint of truth. We know nonverbal behavior influences how we feel about ourselves and how others relate to us. So it's just about making yourself seem bigger to intimidate other people. But posing and misplaced self-confidence is, at the end of the day, just pretend. How long is anyone else? How long really are you going to be fooled when the going gets tough or the starting gun goes off? Power posing is then just a confidence trick. Now, our reading today contains not three magic tricks, not three Moses power poses, which was very nearly the sermon title, but three very effective confidence-boosting tricks, not to boost Moses' self-confidence that he may be personally powerful enough to overcome Moses and an empire, but that he may have confidence enough in the power, the presence, and the promises of God to obey his calling. Moses is the greatest and most celebrated leader in Jewish history, yet at the moment of his calling, we see Israel's future leader exposed as a timid, ill-equipped, and indecisive man. In the pages, chapters, and books that follow, we see Israel saved and the whole of human history changed by the faith of this same weak and uncertain man, solely because in this passage, he finds the confidence to stand beside a faithful God and trust in his promises. Who am I? Moses had argued and protested in Exodus 3. I'm not special. And you know what? God agrees with him. Because it's not about who you are. It's about who I am is. Which is terrible grammar, but wonderful theology. It's not about who you are. It's about who I am is. Throughout Exodus 3 and 4, Moses is simply terrified. First in the presence of God, and then not just that Pharaoh, who's already signed his death warrant once, will not exactly welcome him home, but also that Israel will not listen to him or accept his word. And with good reason, Moses' last encounter with the Hebrews was back in Exodus 2, verse 14. Who made you ruler and judge, they ask? It was in large part Moses' rejection by his own people that led to him fleeing, and he's not anxious to return to them. What then, he asks at the start of, his pa of this passage, if they just don't believe me? Well, God answers Moses' question with one of his own. What's that in your hand? 
Moses, remember, was tending the sheep at Horeb, up on the mountain of God, and all he's carrying with him is his shepherd's staff. It's all he has, and yes, it's an important tool, and yes, it's a prized possession, and yes, it's important and it's bound up in his identity as a shepherd. It's a physical part, perhaps, of who he is. But let's face it, it's nothing special. It's just a stick. And a stick certainly won't persuade Israel. A stick won't save them from the mighty army of a huge empire. In fact, Egypt was a place, by the way, where shepherds were absolutely despised. In Genesis 46, verse 34, we read, For all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. Moses' staff may be indispensable in the fields, but it's not going to be much help on this mission. At least, not until, in obedience to God, he throws it down. When he's willing to place what little he has into God's hands, it becomes transformed. It becomes a serpent. For Israel, this symbol of, sorry, for Egypt, this symbol of ridicule becomes a symbol instead of power. Moses, ironically, without a handy stick to to defend himself from the snake, simply runs away. The point here is not that God can do tricks. We see later that Pharaoh has men who can perform exactly the same illusion. The trick here is that in God's hands, even a humble staff will do. That God has more than he needs with whatever little we already have at hand. How many calls from God are missed when we wait for full provision, fresh supplies, or the perfect equipment to show up? God plus anything equals God. He's already sufficient. He's not waiting for you to get better, to look better, to be stronger, or be equipped with fancier stuff. We don't initiate, and nor do we provision our calling from God. God freely calls us where we are and with whatever we happen to have in our hand. What is that, God asks, that's in your hand? The answer is it's fine whatever it is, because in God's hands, it is enough. Next, God says, just in case that doesn't convince people, God asks Moses to put his hand inside his cloak, a phrase which literally means asking him to touch, to put his hand upon his heart. Moses again obeys, and when he pulls his hand out, it's leprous, it's white as snow. He is physically and spiritually defiled. He's unclean, he's condemned. Now, I hate snakes, and I would have run from a snake, but this is worse because this is Moses' own hand that he's put upon his own heart. This is Moses' worse fear, a fear of judgment, a fear that he is unclean, and he has nowhere and no ability to run, no one but God who can heal him. You see, the second trick isn't that he puts his hand in and pulls it out unclean. It's that when he has the trust to put it back against his chest, God demonstrates that he can heal and purify Moses' hand. The trick is not what is in your heart. The trick is what God can do to transform and heal your heart. The second great impediment to any call from God is that we know only too well what is in our heart. We know we are unclean. We never believe that we are worthy But in doing so, we fail to acknowledge the power of God to purify us and to use us. Because God alone calls and saves. God alone can heal us and restore us. God longs to use our strengths, yes, for his purposes. But he longs to use our weaknesses for his glory. The final confidence trick is a promise. 
that Moses must take on trust because God cannot demonstrate and Moses cannot practice the third sign until and if he returns to the banks of the Nile. This is the last of 14 promises that God makes directly to Moses in Exodus 3 and 4. And he must have faith in each and every one of them. He's been told that the first sign may not work. The second sign may not work. But he's also been told ever since Exodus 3 verse 8 that the plan of God will work. Victory was assured in Exodus 3 verse 8. So I have come down to rescue from the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. In fact, as we'll see in a minute, it was assured and promised much earlier to Abraham. But Moses must step out in faith towards Egypt with that final promise and the first two signs, hoping they will work. Because God will only deliver the the third and clinching sign on sight and on demand. And so, after a little bit more haggling and negotiating over the details, Moses grudgingly does, in fact, at the end of Exodus 4, pack his bags and head to Egypt. Not before asking his father-in-law in in Exodus 4, verse 18, let me go back to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. There are moments preaching when I might have to look in a commentary or a book of Jewish customs or look at the root of some ancient language to interpret what is said. I know exactly what Moses is saying here. Moses is hoping that they're all dead. Have you ever had to phone somebody you didn't want to call and as you've dialed the digits, you've seriously hoped that they don't answer? Have you ever walked up to a front door and knocked on it, hoping against hope that nobody is home? That is Exodus 4.18. Moses is hoping they're all dead. Or possibly just that his father-in-law will say no, and he will have to obey, and he can say to God, sorry I called, but they didn't answer. Sorry I knocked, but they weren't home. Sorry I went, and they were all dead. Now let me get back to my sheep. Take heart then that this great leader has confidence but not certainty, and yet through him and in him a nation will be saved. A nation that has not all died, but over 400 years, the couple of dozen who entered Egypt have become well over a million, just as God promised they would. And so in Exodus 5.29, Moses and Aaron brought together all all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything that the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. They see the signs. They trust and believe and they worship. After 430 years of silence and slavery, the God who had promised Abraham had heard their cry and is faithful to his word. For he'd promised Abraham in Genesis 15, then the Lord said to him, Abraham, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. The people see the signs, and they remember God's promises, and recognizing his faithfulness, they respond in worship. How different then the response of Pharaoh in Exodus 7, who instead of seeing the signs of God, sees only tricks which his own illusionists can recreate. 
The signs don't work on Pharaoh. Even the plagues and wonders don't do that because they're not intended to. God has hardened his heart. He has condemned his fate and that of his nation, just as he had promised Abraham. The signs are not intended to convince Pharaoh. They're just designed to work on Moses, to give Moses the confidence to call his people. They need to work on Israel, that they may trust Moses to worship God and to follow him. And they're intended to be a sign to you and to me, to witness in the face of our weakness to God's strength and his faithfulness. You see, the story is in part a big story about a faithful and a fractal God. I'm working at work with fractals at the moment, and fractals are utterly consistent rules and patterns that appear to be the same at any scale, whether it's the size of of an atom or the size of a universe, from an inch of coastline to a meter to a mile to a hundred miles. The Bible is a fractal revelation of a reliable God. It does not matter if you take one word or one book, one man or one nation, one moment or the entire arc of human history. The Bible is a fractal revelation of a faithful God because God's promises are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. You can trust the promises he has made, the prophecy he has spoken over you, because the true source of our confidence is that God always, always keeps his promises. Moses didn't just fake it till he made it. How far do you think Moses would have got without God and just a copy of Amy's book? How far do you think Moses would have got in defeating the most powerful empire on earth by just standing like Wonder Woman for two and a half minutes before he goes to meet with Pharaoh? This is Amy's book, Presence. It's about you being more present, bringing your boldest self to your biggest challenges. But it's clear that the presence Moses needed to face the biggest challenge of all is more of God, not more of Moses. Power poses only make you seem larger. True confidence is rightful humility in the awesome presence of an almighty God. So instead, I want to draw your attention, instead of to Amy's front cover, to the back cover of our Lent course notes. Lord, we ask that you would act not according to the poverty of what we are or believe, but according to the greatness of who you are and what you can do. The only power pose that you and I will ever need is to put our hands together, fall on our knees, and pray that prayer. Lord, we ask that you would act not according to the poverty of what we are or believe, but according to the greatness of who you are and what you can do. So that when God calls, he will give you and me the confidence to step out in faith. Don't wait for certainty or the perfect qualifications. There is real danger here in fear dressed up as false humility. How many miracles and blessings have been lost because people asked, who am I, and didn't wait to hear, I am, or looked in their hands and failed to see what that inadequate offering could become in God's all-sufficient grip. What this Lent is God asking, calling you to do. Don't act pious in your humility. Be confident in and faithful to God's enabling and his promises. Because the real confidence trick is to focus on the promise and not the problem. It gave Moses the confidence to go up against an empire, still aware of his own inadequacy, but confident in the sufficiency of the God who had promised to set his people free. That was Moses' true strength, power and confidence and this Lent season I pray that it may be yours and mine also because God has made that same presence 
that same promise in Christ to set us free. Like Israel then, may we see and trust and worship and obey. For he alone is worthy of our confidence. In him alone rests our hope and our salvation. In him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.